The example I give is the Cardinals were able to threaten Galileo with ex with excommunication if he didn't recant his Copernican theories. Whether Galileo recanted or didn't recant made no difference. The earth still spins around the sun and not the other way around. And the Cardinals had the power to punish or threaten Galileo, but they didn't have the power to rearrange the solar system. And that's the analogy that we have. We can't exceed these limits. The atmosphere is telling us we've exceeded those limits. And the result is we're melting the poles of the planet and raising the sea levels and causing all kinds of other havoc. We've got to live within those limits. You're listening to the Rewilding Earth Podcast. A native of New Jersey, Jamie discovered his passion for wild nature surrounded by meadows and forests near his home on a family outing in old growth forest in the Quebec wilderness. In 1986, he bought a log cabin in northern New Hampshire, where he still lives. In 1985, Jamie became involved with Earth First, and his first Preserve Appalachian Wilderness proposal appeared in the May 1987 issue of Earth First Journal. The following year, working as a reporter for the local weekly, he stumbled upon news that the former Diamond International Timberlands were for sale. Jamie quit his job and formed the first Preserve Appalachian Wilderness, or Paul and later Northern Appalachian Restoration Project to fight the destruction of wild areas and spectacular old growth in Northern New England. Today, Jamie continues to advocate for big wilderness and continental scale wildlands networks. He's an author who's written You Had a Job for Life and Children of the Northern Forest, Wild New England's History from Glaciers to Global Warming. My, my parents exposed me to nature from an early age. I always loved climbing trees and Eventually, I was taken at about the age of 15 into some real Quebec wilderness. And it had such an impact on me that I've been going back there almost every year now for the last 50 years, spending two, three, four, five, six weeks up there, paddling around on lakes, wandering around on some pretty old forests, and also sadly watching them get cut down. And at some point, I realized that it wasn't enough just to go up and have fun in the in in the wilderness it was my job to to defend it and in the case of new england where there wasn't very much wilderness to try to expand that base and i moved up to northern new hampshire almost 40 years ago now and immediately stumbled into uh, what turned out to be the beginning of the biggest story in many decades in northern new england which was Suddenly, the paper companies, which had owned about 10 million acres of timberland, undeveloped timberland in uh, northern Vermont, New Hampshire, and mostly in Maine, were beginning to sell. And from 1988 until 2004, they unloaded about six or eight million acres. And that brought in hedge funds and other charming people to buy the land and skin it. And so this, the problem wasn't solved. It's just the, the, those who were causing the problem changed their identities. Yeah. If only land like that could be just transferred into state or federal 
buffer zones for national park, a big main woods national park or something. It would be really great if there was a policy on the books that would, that would address that. Sadly, there has been federal money for that. It's called the Forest Legacy Program, and it was to buy ease, working forest easements and land. And of course, the timber lobby and the state agencies hijacked it entirely for massive easements to stop development in areas where there was next to no threat of development, remote, no, no particular view, lots of clear cuts. And so we spent millions of dollars that could have bought land that could begin to heal and rewild. Instead, we bought worthless easements and didn't even require the landowners who sold the easement to maintain responsible, sustainable, low-impact forestry. They keep skinning it the way there is. So it's a, nut, it's a case that's all too sad and all too frequent of special interests getting away with hijacking public assets to privatize them. I just got your book. I love it. I, I haven't been able to, of course, read the whole thing. But I do feel like if I get into this situation, flip to a page, any page. And I don't know why I, I follow Michael Kellett. I follow Restore. It's really weird that I turn to this particular page as you're describing the proposed 3.2 million acre Main Woods National Park. And in particular, how you describe the difference between national and local conservation organizations and how they work very differently from each other and a little bit of a dust up that you had <laughs> at a meeting during uh, a coalition meeting i imagine is what it was where you had uh, the big national groups and then groups like restore in the same room and feathers were ruffled in that particular meeting michael and his then partner david carl had proposed the mainwoods national park and one of the state groups the next day issued a really nasty press release mocking the number of members of uh, Restore, emphasizing they came from Massachusetts, even though they had a main office, and ridiculing the idea that we could have such a big, ambitious 3.2 million acre national park. What of all the people who earned their money on it? And no consideration of the fact that the people were in poverty. There are alternative approaches that would include some tourism and much better forestry that gets out of the commodity racket, which is the current economy and has been for a long time, and gets into value adding. And it was just a really nasty thing. And then it turned out that their criticism of Restore, taking an action without getting their permission, was something they had just done to the rest of the, what you call coalition, uh, it, it was actually called the Northern Forest Alliance. And that group of 15 uh, organizations, state, national, New England, New York, had agreed to protect a particular area and a subset of them, including this particular group, had agreed to sacrifice that to wind towers. And so when I confronted them with that's when the meeting went downhill. So it was okay for them to accuse us of acting without their authorization, but they had the right to act with, without our authorization. And it didn't set well with me. That story reminded me of so many frustrations at Dave Foreman and, and Kim Crumbo and others. And then I, once I got into the movement myself, but I'd hear them tell stories from well before when I got into it. And then I recognized those same stories, those same turf wars, in a sense, the condescending things that you sometimes see from the great big groups. And 
I mean, who cares how many members anybody has? Everybody wishes they had more. Anyway, it doesn't make any sense. And I recognize that right away. I'm like, why did I turn to that part in the book and put my finger and start reading? <laughs> I think probably there were other sections of the book where you could have turned to that would have gotten a similar, somewhat different story, but the same dynamics. I want to say one thing, though, and that is that almost all of the people who I had these often quite vocal disagreements with were really good people. And they were trying their best, but they were working for a bureaucracy that had a board defended on big bucks donations. And so they had to clear everything they said. I had the luxury of being a, a, a kind of a, a loose wire or a loose cannon. And I didn't have to clear anything with anybody. They told me long ago that I didn't have any credibility. So I just felt I got to stay true to what the bears and the lichens want and think. And the reason I think for the conflict is not that they're bad people, but that they have agreed to work in a system that requires that you self-censor and that you accept the rules of the game that are dictated by the global economic and political forces who control our society. And I'm not willing to do that if it means that I have to pretend that ecological laws and limits don't apply to this particular situation. And so I said what I felt the science and the ethics required, whereas they didn't lie. They just tried to compromise down so they wouldn't get fired or take too much heat from their big funders or the politicians they're lobbying. So I really, I, I wish that good people would resist the system more but I don't see them as most of them, I don't think are actively malevolent. And often I would get the comment over a glass of beer. I agree with everything you just said in my position. I'm not able to articulate those views. Mm. And, and I'm sure that I'm sure that everybody else who, who's like us has had similar experiences. Yeah. Yeah. And I just get reflective when I think about this particular situation we find ourselves in like we've been a party to or read about an awful lot of conservation victories and on one sheet of paper with nothing else around they look really amazing the millions of acres of wilderness when you put another sheet of paper next to it showing the total acreage <laughs> of the united states lower 48 uh, the state that you love the most whatever it is it there's a victory in it and then there's a loss to it and we find ourselves in the state we're in today it's what has the conservation movement accomplished and where have we failed and how much are we to blame or our work to blame or outside actors when we look at how far we now have to go to get back to any sense of fairness to the rest of the species of the planet and to get out of hot water ourselves i think we legitimately can say we need help because we have a global economy that is hell-bent on profit and the hell with any side effects such as degradation, extinction, global melting. All they care about is the profit. And until and unless we can get the political system to stop accepting their bribes and to start responding to our ecological and ethical imperatives, 
no amount of good work by conservationists can can alone can can stem the tide now have we been as efficient and effective in marshalling the limited resources we have funding man and woman power imagination i don't think so and i think that we need to do some real self self-searching on this because i think we could be a lot more efficient and effective and i think that if we did take a more courageous scientifically backed and ethically strong position on climate change biodiversity habitat degradation and really the, the environmental injustice that is inflicted on humans and non-humans alike i think we would really excite the general public that's not engaged and uh in much more effectively and they would start demanding this stuff and we really could turn things around but if we're going to present them something that's corporate or bureaucratic and unreadable and boring and also often compromised even before you began the negotiations we're not going to fire up the spirits even as the the calamities uh, intensify our greatest strength is the greatest strength of life it boils down to something that i touched on earlier which is there're two kind of worldviews one that says we live in a finite planet that operates under physical and natural laws that are not of our making and we have no option but to abide by those laws we can't repeal the law of gravity or carrying capacity or extinction and what leads to it we need to find ways of behaving in relationship to this lovely planet that we are so lucky to live on in ways that don't exceed those limits don't ignore those laws don't violate those laws so if we basically ask mother earth what are the limits under which we can operate and we accept them now the creativity is okay so we can't cut all the trees all the time but we can cut a few trees from time to time what are we going to do with them and how are we going to do that in a wise way and so by accepting limits and then addressing our challenges i think we have a a real fighting chance unfortunately there are a lot of people in real power who in, in fact i think some people in real power view civilization as the mechanism by which they can avoid avoid evade and escape those natural non-negotiable limits they're wrong but they have the power to make mischief the example i give is the cardinals were able to threaten galileo with ex with excommunication if he didn't recant his copernican theories whether galileo recanted or didn't recant made no difference the earth still spins around the sun and not the other way around and the cardinals had the power to punish or threaten galileo but they didn't have the power to rearrange the solar system and that's the analogy that we have we can't exceed these limits the atmosphere is telling us we've exceeded those limits and the result is we're melting the poles of the planet and raising the sea levels and causing all kinds of other havoc we've got to live within those limits and it, it, it that's not a draconian threat that i'm making it's actually 
opening the door to real freedom and real joy and real beauty because happiness isn't shopping in some box store and spending money on something that's going to end up in the landfill happiness is frolicking and sauntering in the woods or along the seashore or in the desert or up in the mountains and preferably with a child or a grandchild or someone else with a smile on their face listening to the bird song wow. that the, there's nothing to compare with that and that's one reason we need wilderness so that we have the bird song all the birds that, that sing have a home and when we have a lot of wilderness a lot more than we have right now that really is our greatest teacher about limits oh wilderness is off limits to oil wells and clear cuts and cattle grazing so i guess that means we have to meet our needs some other way we have to accept those limits and be creative about it what you're saying is completely reasonable but that's maybe not exactly the point right now while there's just this huge sport of hijacking these conversations so that real conversations can never really take root assume the old ed abby idea that someone is breaking into your grandma's house are you gonna try to reason with them or are you gonna try to decommission them to protect granny and I think that our democracy is failing in no small measure because of bad faith that gets away with being treated as well. One side said this and the other side said that. Yeah. If you aren't going to agree that the law of gravity is in operation, the earth is a sphere, and that the atmosphere has limits to how much carbon it can absorb before it starts melting the planet, I'm not interested in a debate with you. And if you're there to sabotage, I'm definitely not interested in dealing with somebody who operates in bad faith. Um, if you are offering really thoughtful critiques of what I'm saying, and, and you make me think, you may or may not make me change my mind, but I will respect you and I will respond accordingly and say, here's why I disagree with you, or have you considered this? But that's a good faith debate. And hopefully, uh, in a good faith debate, minds can be changed. But no, you put your finger on a, a really toxic thing. But my advice to activists is don't engage in these in, in debates with bad faith people because it's like the old Monty Python argument clinic. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> I want to talk about from the ground up. What's that all about? What's going on there? Yeah, this may be the first interview about from the ground up. Uh, it's uh, a quarterly online publication that uh, an organization called Wildlands, Woodlands, Farmlands, and Communities, a New England-wide conservation kind of movement, is going to be releasing. In the spring, this group released a report called Wildlands in New England that conducted the first inventory of actually protected wildlands in a region. In this case, it was New England. We, it found that in the 40 million acres in New England, 1.3 million acres, or about 3.3%, 3 is actually protected as wildlands. That's way, way too little for, for what we need. Order, I'm thinking 30 to 50%, but at any rate, a minimum of 10 to 20%, certainly. After that report came out and was so well received, 
we decided to establish a periodical so that we could bring our story to the New England conservation community. And what sets us apart from other groups is that we're probably, I, I'm reluctant to say think tank, but we're more of a think tank than we are of a going down to the, the to lobby in the state house and things like that. We put out scientific reports. We uh, do a lot of analysis of the challenges we face. And we also support a lot of groups that are doing the more grassroots stuff. Uh, they find our, our work very useful. So from the ground up, we'll showcase the work that we're doing and particularly try to frame it in, in the approach that we're taking, which is really embedded in our name. We are advocating for much more wildlands. We are advocating for much better woodland management, much more value adding and less commodification, uh, much more treatment, managing the land as if the future mattered. And ditto with farmland. We're, we're, we're trying to revitalize New England farming as much as possible and realistic to get away from petrochemicals and pesticides and commodities and monocultures and agribusiness scale farms and communities. And when we say communities, we're talking about the rural community I live in, and we're also talking about inner city communities. And we believe there should be green spaces in all of those communities. It's a little easier where I live because we're basically a forested area. Suburbia and inner cities, there are places where people don't have access to green spaces, convenient access. And uh, I believe that anyone should live, everyone should live within about a, a 10 minute walk of a green space. Now, it doesn't have to be, obviously, in a city, it can't be a, a, a million acre national park. But if you have a lot of urban green spaces, rivers that connect green spaces, other greenways that connect them, and make sure that every neighborhood has one and hopefully is growing some food, urban gardening and farming. It makes life a, a lot more equitable and just, and it begins to get us away from this idea that it's okay to have sacrifice zones uh, where we trash uh, a particular piece of land and inflict the toxins and the degradation on the poorest communities. So it's really environmental justice for humans and non-humans alike. But we look at, at our integrated approach is that all of these issues, the wildlands, the woodlands, the farmlands, and environmental justice, strong communities, uh, we have to address them all together. How does Children of the Northern Forest fit in with everything? Is this a long time coming? Is this something that you've been thinking about for a good chunk of your life and you finally got it done? Or was it more of a sense of urgency project that needed to, it wanted to be born and you just had to take it up? Both. The story really for me starts in early 1988 when I stumbled upon the first of the big paper company land sales. I quit my job as a newspaper reporter and have been doing this wilderness work ever since. And so I followed it through the various public processes. And at some point, I thought I needed to write a book to tell the story of what went on in the 90s. But when I started doing the book, I was just too close to events. And some of the really big deals that I treat in the book either had not happened or were still in process of going on. So I, I set the book aside for a long time. And that's when I worked on uh, a second book that came out in six years ago called You Had a Job for Life 
which is the oral history of one particular paper mill that that closed in 2007 it's about eight miles down the road from where i live and i got the stories of the mill workers and how the mill had dominated the town the mill was the life of the town was a common refrain and really the tragedy when a wisconsin-based owner of the mill without consulting the local management decided to close the mill and because the paper industry has dominated this area and all of northern new england for over a century, there really was no economic diversity to fall back on when the mill went down. And 15 years later, we're still really struggling. And all the solutions, sadly, that the politicians come up with are bribe more global capital to come in and continue the exploitation instead of nurturing local woodlot owners, local value adding, local farming, local entrepreneurs to develop a, a much more robust, but less easy to plunder by global capital local economy. You had a job for life, came out about six years ago, and has just been reissued this month by Brandeis University Press. And it's the microeconomic view of, of this region, although I don't get into economics I, too much. I, it's more the story of the people on the land. And then Children of the Northern Forest, I, after I finished You Had a Job for Life, I went back and worked for several years on Children of the Northern Forest. And it also is just being released by Yale University Press this month. And Children of the Northern Forest tells the story of the, the forests of northern New England that have been dominated by the paper industry since about 1900. It, but it starts the story with the melting of the glaciers and continues on to today. So its subtitle is From Glaciers to Global Warming. Uh, and it, it talks about the ecology, the pre-settlement forest, early visitors, Henry Thoreau, among others, and the uh, rise of the logging industry in the 19th century, and then the paper industry in the 20th century, and then the, the decline of the paper industry over the last half century. And it tells a lot of the failed policies to uh, perpetuate a status quo that clearly has failed. And, and it ends with an alternative vision that is, is quite consistent with what I've outlined in our, in our discussion this afternoon. Basically, that we need to abide natural limits and we need to nurture the natural and human communities of this region and stop subsidizing global capital to come in and plunder us once again. And, and so both books, I think, uh, are very much in line with the, with the values and interests of from the ground up. And I'm very happy to have found a, a niche as one of the editors of, of, um, from the ground up. I, I think it's a, a very logical continuation of the work that I do and love. And so it's a very interesting, exciting, and somewhat exhausting time right now, but, but I'm having fun, even if, if I'm uh, not sure what day of the week it is. There's real places around the world and around our country where the people locally are forced to think about what we do as an alternative to the taker culture, to like what you, you mentioned, local business, encouraging tourism, things like that. But you've gotten to see now through your work, what people are proposing and what people are doing on the ground. Is there promise there? Uh, I think there is. There's, there's both dreadfully inappropriate and awful responses and some really promising approaches to local redevelopment. And, and in fact, towards the end of Children in the Northern Forest, I, I profile some of those, those activities that have 
transformed a decaying downtown into uh, a quite vibrant little community. There's still a lot of work to go, but, uh, but there's some real promise there, and it could be applied to other communities. As to the question you asked about, what do we do when the, the dominant industry that really controlled a community's life for decades or a century or more, when it goes down? The reality is that when you have something that's that dominant, you, you, as I mentioned, you don't have the economic diversity that could buffer the blows of, of the loss of an important business because you've just lost the thing that basically holds us together. So the first thing that I think you need to do is to share your stories. And, I, and that, was, that was the gift that the people I interviewed gave me was, I just started interviewing them and they just were so, nobody had ever asked them a question about their experiences. They were so happy to tell their stories. And, and I realized how important their stories are and that what a, a key role they play in the healing process. We need to know what went on. We need to know what worked. We need to know how we're hurting. We need to know what we might be able to do to start working beyond that but first we do have to allow for a period of mourning not not to be dragged out but uh, and then the second thing the second gift they gave me was after i had finished telling the story i started reflecting on the lessons of the story and and i tacked on an epilogue to what you had a job for life that did a sort of a a, a non-professional economist critique of uh, what went wrong, namely over-reliance on commodities, absentee ownership, externalizing pollution and things like that, lack of economic diversity, lack of local value adding, that sort of thing. And, and that really, th those lessons that their stories taught me, I think lay out a, a very lovely blueprint for how we approach it. So we can ask questions. Does this proposed economic project benefit both the natural and human communities? Does it have a big carbon footprint? Does it degrade the land? Does it add value to our the gifts that the land gives us? Or is it just a commodity that's going to be shipped abroad at low global commodity prices? Is this something that really is necessary to make, or is this just more plastic gigaws that are going to end up in the landfill? And if you ask a series of questions like that, you very quickly rule out most of the bad stuff that we've been fighting anyway, and you want to focus on stuff that has a low carbon footprint, but produces something of genuine value. And that the benefits go to those who live in those communities instead of being sucked out into a hedge fund or an oil company. And then you just have to have the courage of your convictions and also a little luck in finding friendly politicians who may actually agree with you instead of just lobbying for the, the big money folks who gave them another generous campaign contribution to by their affections and loyalty and service. Most of those people never knew a town that didn't rely completely and solely on that industry. And they've never lived anywhere else. So it's time to really put thinking caps on. 
But there, we others could be getting ready for this stuff to to think about rewilding and how to put all of these things that we talk about in place. Where in that one specific instance, it doesn't matter what the politics in general are. It's a reality on the ground. And it's one of the only things I can think of that puts us into a new reality where we have to think with everything that we've learned about conservation, how to move forward without the destructive stuff in the way and without creating more. You, you point to something really important, and that is that because folks who were in a mill town were so dominated by this one gigantic economic engine, local democracy didn't really develop the way it would have if there had been a community of multiple businesses all scrambling to, to survive. And therefore, there's a lot of debate over what's best for the community. And that's where democracy comes from the ground up. And I think that the, the, the salvation of both our political problems and some of the problems in the conservation community is if the leadership does come from the ground up and that the uh, big top-down groups find ways of being of service to us rather than saying, no, we've got this, you can go home now. And then finally, one of the really important things that I, I learned from, particularly you had a job for life, was that we, the communities up here are small. I live in a town of about 600 and some people, the mill town down the road, Groveton, where the mill was closed in 2007 as a population in the low 2000s. We're small communities. We're not like most of America. We're like really small rural America. As a result, we are not the complex economy and not the complex society that a big city would be, for instance. And I think that we can play a real role if we get our act together and make progress on this. We can make a real role in demonstrating how a community can work with its natural surroundings so that the natural and human communities really are in sync and are helping each other. And I think that reconciliation is absolutely essential uh, if there's going to be a future for my children and grandchildren and their children and grandchildren, that we get the human communities in sync with the natural communities. And we can't do that by telling the natural communities, you've got to change here and here. You and I have to make the changes, but I think they're, those are great and wonderful changes that we make that we're less about getting and spending and laying waste our powers and more about immersing ourselves in, in, in the song and dance of wild nature, which is the best game I've ever been allowed to, to play in or the best dance I've ever danced. What is it about the Northern Forest. What has made you fall so deeply in love with it? I guess just about everything, but we're blessed with great mountains. I, I live about an hour north of Mount Washington and the presidentials. We have great rivers. We're about three miles from the Connecticut River. The forests are largely intact, although many have been clear cut or heavily cut over, but they haven't been developed and roaded. We have the potential for wolves and cougars to come back. We have lots of fun wildlife sightings from time to time, bears, moose, coyotes howling in, in just outside our house at night, barred owls hoo-hooing us at night. It's just a wonderful place, And I, but I'm not a chauvinist. I think that any place where 
a good deal of its naturalness remains intact is a wonderful place. The desert in Arizona, this, the coastal areas, the Great Plains when the, when the wild Great Plains were waving and the buffalo were there, the cold regions to the north of us. All of these places are, are beautiful and it's wonderful just watching the creative ways that, that life responds to this wildness as part of its meeting its evolutionary destiny and basic survival instincts. And I just feel really lucky to have had good health and access to some wonderful places. And I wish that we lived in a society that recognized that that is a basic human right. There should be no sacrifice zones anywhere ever. And everyone should have access to some, to some place where there's something green and wild and, and mysterious going on. And we can be a part of it without messing with it. Jamie, thank you so much for being on the Rewilding Leadership Council, for one, thank you for that, and for taking the time to do this with us today. Thanks for listening to the Rewilding Earth podcast. We do what we do because of you. This podcast is supported by listeners like you who long to live in a wilder world. Please consider donating at rewilding.org and subscribe to our weekly news and article digest while you're there. To go the extra mile, you can follow and share Rewilding Earth on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Bonus points for sharing this podcast with your friends. To listen to past episodes, go to rewilding.org slash pod. That's rewilding.org slash pod.